Welcome to Office Hours with David Belcher and Blaine Bartlett. Learn.blainebartlett.com forward slash LMM. Blaine, how are you? Hey, I'm doing really well, doing really well. Just had a great birthday celebration in Southern California. Went to the wine country in uh, Paso Robles, and I'm just now getting wine deliveries here at the house. Nice. Well, happy birthday, my friend. And, well, thank uh, you. you. You look far younger than you are. I know that. So we, uh, you and your wife uh, are blessed. So happy, happy birthday. Thank Sorry you. I missed it again. <laughs> but I was at <laughs> no your other birthday party up at Woody Island. The, the big the big one the big one the big one that was a good one that was a good one to join me with well excellent well you know I've been uh contemplating ignorance and uh it fits right into <laughs> it's your almost moron David yeah <laughs> true uh but it, it's interesting because you know as you you know I'm 53 and you know more and more understanding the, the more I know the less I know in one of the interesting nuances of ignorance uh, is how humility and arrogance play its role within the context of ignorance, because all human beings are ignorant. Um, the, uh, the, the anchor of my faith is that uh, the omniscient, the all-knowing, the abundant uh, loves me as much as I love my children, uh, and therefore I can have faith and be humble in my ignorance. And fear is what creates this arrogance of ignorance and one of the aspects uh that i found interesting is that sometimes it's not just the people that lie to us manipulate us uh, cheat us uh, but it's truly the people that love us the most that are most fearful for us so people that are arrogant and ignorant are fearful for themselves and and they they will project that insecurity with that arrogance and pretend like they know what they know as experts and create conditions and judgments but the more dangerous to me are the people who fear for us the most because they love us so much our parents for example and i see with technology uh, uh changing so quickly that a lot of parents they don't know what they don't know and they're giving advice to their children because they're so afraid something bad will happen to them and you know in some respects the kids know better about their future about school or about jobs or or opportunity, just like my mom said, the internet was a fad. Uh, you know that that was a case of you know arrogant ignorance out of love and fear. What you know, as you have had your big birthday here, and you're a little bit older than me, and much more uh, experience in humility and ignorance. Uh, you know, what have you learned about being a parent? About you know loving someone too much and be weariful of this arrogance that it can create. Well, yeah, what comes to mind as you're talking about this is the uh, whole notion <clears throat> of a helicopter parent. I mean, I'll just kind of put it in that context where, yeah, yeah, people learn by making mistakes. We grow by making mistakes. We grow by putting ourselves on the edge. And if I'm not going to be allowed to fail, and I don't even want to use the word fail forward, I, I've got to be allowed to fail. Because that's the only way that I can um, become less ignorant. And, I mean, as a, as a parent, um, I mean, I look at it, and I, and I don't want my kids to hurt. I mean, I don't want my grandkids to hurt. Uh, my grandson was in an auto accident uh, a couple, about a month ago, and it was his first one. He's you know, got his license now. And um, so I told him that because he said, I thought I was a good driver. I'm going, well, yeah, that's ignorance. 
That's ignorance because you've never taste, uh, tested that assumption. Now you know what a safe distance between your car and another car is, not just in your head, but you know it in a felt manner. You know how speed works. You now have a sense of how this compresses real quick if you're not paying attention. Now you don't have that ignorance any longer. And he wouldn't have had that had he not had that accident. So that's kind of where I land with this. And my kids aren't going to grow unless I let them fail. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the easiest to I me, mean, just, just think about you know, your, your, your girls or, uh, yeah, as they were learning to walk. Yeah, they, they tumbled a lot. And you just let them you know, get a bruise shin. You let them get a bloody nose. And that's how, yeah, they, and it, that's how they learn. And, and yet it's so difficult. Uh, you know, number one, uh, as parents or as humans, you know, pain itself, uh, struggles, failures, setbacks, uh, resistance are deemed in perspective as a different thing for ourselves. Uh, and, and I find it really interesting that some uh, people that can't handle or have the wrong perspective of pain, setbacks, failures, they then project some uh, new reality onto their children yeah. uh, that somehow pain should mean something different to them. You know, I was uh, in Sedona years ago and I was sitting on the bank of a, a river and there's you know, kind of rocks all around and whatnot. And this family came down the trail and uh, was mom and a dad and uh, two young kids. The, young, you know, the youngest boy, I think, was about four years old, maybe five years old. He wandered down to the bank and he picked up a rock and he was tossing the, you know, the rock into the water. And dad was sitting back uh, under the shade of a tree and he says, you know, Tommy, come back away from there. You're going to fall in. And Tommy turned around and looked at him. And then he bent down, picked up another rock and tossed it back in uh, into the water. And dad said, Tommy, I said, get away from there. You're going to fall in. Well, this happened two more times. So four times here. And Tommy would look, he heard his dad. And finally, Tommy just kind of turned around and stood with his hands on his hips and said, Dad, that's your fear, not mine. And then he wow. bent down and he picked up a rock and he tossed it back in the water. And Dad went, hmm. And Dad got up and came down and joined him. I mean, oh, nice. That's that projection is where we limit others. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because you know, there's two types of fear that's placed upon us. And fear to me is an interference, right? Fear is a ego-based consciousness uh, directed to creating that interference. So there's fear that's created by our own personal experience. So I've seen individuals that grew up and things happen to them and they, they <laughs> then take on uh, fearful uh, behavior. And then there's people who have had things happen to them and uh, they've learned that, oh, this isn't so bad, and they become less fearful. Um, yeah. And you see, like, just extraordinary things on, especially when I'm thinking skateboards and motorcycles and, you know, <laughs> the things that I've seen people do that just, they've crashed so many times. And, you know, an evil Knievel is probably the first one to break every bone in his body and, you know, wh whatever that meant to him. Um, but moreover, too, th just like you said, there's the other fear where I see, uh, kids go one way or the other when the parent parents, right? Is it a parent that sits down and throws the rock with them or comes, which I think is the most ironic thing ever. You have a, a father who loves their child so much. They're so scared. And then they go down to the river, grab them and hit them. 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, love me again that way. Yeah. 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 So now you're afraid of me getting hurt, but your, your response to me telling you that's your fear is to, to hurt me <laughs> right? yeah. and, and be afraid of you instead of the water. Yep. Yeah. You know, right. it's, yeah. Jerry Jampolsky. I mean, you knew Jerry. I know I yeah. knew Jerry fairly well. Uh, he passed uh, earlier this year. Um, he wrote a book and I love this book. Fear is, uh, fear is, uh, or love. Oh, got the title all messed it, it, up. <laughs> fear is, uh, fear is the absence of love. Fear is the absence of love. And when you, when you're actually, I'm going to put this on a metaphysical plane. When you are actually connected to spirit, when you're actually connected to the universe in a very fundamental way, there is actually nothing to fear. The only time that fear shows up is when the ego is feeling threatened. Yeah. And the purpose of the ego is to survive. Right. Um, yeah. When you're connected to spirit, there's no question of survival because survival just is. I mean, you, you can't destroy energy. You can't create energy. It just exists. And the Buddhists, I think, had it right when they talked about um, it's not the first arrow that causes me pain. It's the second arrow that causes me pain. And metaphorically, what they're talking about is I may have a, an injury, but if I dwell on it, it's the dwelling on it that is the second arrow. And that's where suffering comes in. Right. So, and su suffering is a choice. Uh, yep. Perspective is a co-pilot. Uh, and mm -hmm. you know, the way that we react, uh, either the reaction of others or the action of self. And it, it's so interesting, you know, to me is, we go back to the circle because Tony's uh, in the, the green room. We could bring him in. I want to shout out to David Corbett. I haven't seen him in a while. He's hey. in our comments here in an Uber in New York City. So, uh, hey, yeah, it's his 50th high school reunion. Oh, is it? Yeah. <laughs> I, I also just real quickly want to, uh, before I bring Tony on, uh, one of my good friends passed away today. He had cancer for the last two years. Oh. Uh, Trevor Moad, uh, who was. Trevor, uh, really? The mindset oh. coach for Russell Wilson and uh, and yeah. many others, and taught me uh, and coached me on the valuable aspect of neutrality and and understanding what the power of being in neutral was and understanding how the flow worked. And you know, I, I until I met Trevor, who I went to college with, and obviously he's a leader in his space, uh, who told me that my positivity. Uh, of getting too excited about a success was equal to uh, being too negative or too down uh, when something negative had happened uh, in a game. And I had a saying, you know, just keep playing. I it took me years, uh, especially playing in school, to get to neutral. And mm -hmm. one of the powers of QB1 Kenobi, my business partner Warren Moon or Russell Wilson, is they played at neutral. And it's counterintuitive that you actually have a higher physical capacity uh, being at neutral than you do in six gear, the most positive gear or negative six gear and a negative gear. And uh, I just want to give a big shout out to Trevor. And oh. I, I know he lived his life to teach people to be at peace and to be in the flow. And yeah. I'm sure he is at peace and may he rest in peace. And I know you knew Trevor as well. So yeah. I'm, 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 I'm shocked. I really am. I knew he was ill, but I didn't. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, God bless him. Anyway, on a more positive note, Tony D is in the house. Tony D. <laughs> he is co-founder and CEO the man. Lottery.com. It's time to get lucky, Blaine. We got yeah. Our friend here. Put my hands together here. 
<laughs> you know what? I love the story. Not everyone knows, like I do, the story of Lottery.com. So I was hoping for office hours you could take us through the story of Lottery.com because obviously the regulations, the rules, and the perspective of the lottery have evolved and accelerated like fantasy and gambling as well. And I'd love for you to share that story with us to start. Sure. Thanks, everybody. I really appreciate the time, uh, uh, David and Blaine. Um, so I'll, I'll just say the, the sort of quick story of lottery.com, you know, is, uh, well, I'll say I'm, I'm a serial entrepreneur. I, uh, I really barely graduated high school and, you know, no college. I just felt like I was just, I, I knew myself and I was not going to be a good student and I really had no way to pay for it anyways. And so um, I got into tech very early in, in about, you know, 98. Um, and uh, I was lucky enough to be in, in San Francisco and I saw the sort of dot-com boom and bust, you know, that happened in technology during during that time. And I learned a lot of lessons from that. Um, I did start as just sort of an, an employee, you know, as a, I, again, I was an IT guy by, by trade. So I just learned how to fix other people's stuff and I got good at that. And I, and I learned that it's not even enough to just sort of be good at fixing stuff as you have to be good with people and understand people and fix their problems and make them feel good about that. Um, and then if you sort of fast forward, you know, a bunch of years, uh, you know, I, I met my co-founder, Matt Clemenson about eight years ago. And at the time I was running a tech company, he was running a different company. And, you know, we, we got together and we decided we're just going to be best friends and we are going to build things together on the side, you know, meaning we're going to self incubate whatever ideas that we have. Uh, and we had a thesis around that, which is we should build things that should exist or that are inevitable to exist things that have to happen. Right. Um, and so we developed a couple projects around that idea. One of those was lottery. And so we looked at sort of the lottery industry, which is a sort of a legacy industry. And it's one of those that just hasn't gone online, right? It's one of the biggest total addressable markets in the world. It's about 400 billion in lottery sales globally. And I think that's gonna be at about 650 billion in a, in a couple of years. And so we thought, you know, look, can we find a way to let people play the lottery from their phone, the games that they already like to play, like a, like a Powerball or, you know, Mega Millions, whatever their state game is. And we found that mechanism. And then I will say, you know, we raised a little bit of money in the seed round. And I think naively as we, we jumped in to, to that, you know, industry. And once we started talking to people in the industry is they started telling us like, what you're doing is impossible. It's not going to happen. Please just give up. You know, the, the states won't allow this. You have huge competitors that will try to, you know, target you and take you out. Um, you're good entrepreneurs, go do something else. Um, but, you know, we, we still saw the opportunity. We thought like, we can actually make this happen. Somebody's got to do it, right? It will happen eventually. And so we just wanted to be the ones to do that. And so we've just steadily now six and a half years marched along that path to, to figure out a way to do it, be collaborative with the states and get everybody on board and just sort of just bring this very basic service to, to, to online. Why, you know, people went in search of their why I said, why don't you search for why not me? And, uh, you know, I, right. I really, I get fired up when people say, well, <laughs> this is a great idea, but you know, it's not going to be you. Oh yeah. Why not me? And uh, that's yeah. the story of lottery.com, which I love. Go ahead, Blaine. Yeah, just, I mean, I I'm, completely I'm agree. Uh, like, yeah, go ahead, Tony. Go ahead. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I was, I was just going to echo that as you know, I've always, you know, when I look at, at, at you know, when I, I came from humble beginnings, but whenever I saw somebody being successful, I, I, I thought, you know, I can never do that. I always looked at them and said, well, why can't I do that? You know, what's, what's so special about them? What's in them that's not me? And I could probably go do that. And so we did it. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Yeah, there's this, this little thing that I've been playing with. Your problem is my uh, my purpose. Uh, 
So as an entrepreneur, uh, yeah, as you saw a hole and wanted to fill it. Uh, I'm, I'm curious here because you know you got you know 50 jurisdictions plus the D, you know, plus DC. Uh, what was probably the single biggest hurdle that you had to get over in order to make this viable? I mean, truly viable. Sure. You know, when when we started is uh, again is we were an unknown quantity as a, just a very, very tiny startup, just a couple of guys, right? Like trying to make this happen. And so you can imagine, well, I think the first thing we realized is that we have to be collaborative with the States. We cannot be disruptive. So, you know, back, back in 2015, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Uber was just sort of going into jurisdictions. They would, you know, get market share and then they would fight those battles as they, they came up. But we can't do that because the States own these games. It's their games. They take it very seriously. And there's, there's no way to disrupt that industry. Um, and so we thought, look, we, and we've always said is we're not here to disrupt the industry. We're here to help advance the industry and just, just bring it along, you know? Um, so really it took us about a year to get one state to say yes to us. And so what to, to do that is we had to start reaching out to our network and just figure out who can we talk to in some state, right? Where we can, you know, explain our value proposition to them. And the value prop to the state is we are here to sell your product for you for free, which is a good thing. Um, the hesitancy that they all had was, well, you're a for-profit company selling my product for me. And what if you're a bad actor? What if you run off with a jackpot ticket? What if you don't pay out? What if you're just a complete scam, right? So that was their sort of uh, defense for sure. Um, And so, you know, it it took us a while. We got one state to say yes to us, which was actually New Hampshire. That was the first one. And then, you know, once that happened is our, our thought was, and if you imagine New Hampshire, it's a very, very small market, you know, with not tremendous smartphone penetration at the time. Uh, and so it was, a, it was a small market, but it was a good test bed. And, uh, and the thought was, you know, as time goes on and we build our relationships and we just show the industry that we are a good actor, that we do everything that we say we're going to do over this now six and a half years, that more and more states will, will catch on and understand that. And then, you know, we'll build that reputation and we can build on that and go to as many states as we can. And how you many know, states are you? Oh, good. You know, I was going to say, I mean, that, that's probably the best, one of the best description I've seen in practice of the way that I define leadership, which is co-creating coordinated movement. So rather than you know, being a thorn in somebody's side, you actually meet them where they are and then co-create a new, a, a new reality. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. You, you know, really? one of our core values is win together. Uh, it's actually our number one core value. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what we mean by that is it's not a zero-sum game. And whenever we do any deal, whether we're talking to the states or partners or, you know, uh, even internally is that we're we're here to find a way to make sure that in any deal that we do or whatever we're doing in the world is that everybody benefits. You know, and and if we can sort of explain that over time, people start to get it. And we we, exactly what you said is we can co-create a better future together and where we're all very prosperous. What I found interesting, too, with the win together approach uh, is a lottery was actually formed to give schools education money. Uh, most people don't know that it wasn't exactly as it was sold. The, the lottery money uh, was just supplementing money that was already budgeted. So it wasn't as if they had a $100 million budget and the lottery made $100 million, that there'd now be $200 million given to the school. It's just that $100 million supplemented the $100 million that the government, then they used the $100 million to pay for other stuff, which has some benefit, but not the benefit that a lot of people wanted from the lottery. Uh, those who know that. Uh, history of it. Now, Win Together is so interesting because Blaine and I, as you know, wrote a book called Compassionate Capitalism, uh, which allows everyone to win. 
um, and mm-hmm. to create abundance and windfalls and understand how the energy of money works. Now, your Win Together program also creates philanthropy um, and gives back to the community as well as the state itself. Um, what are you doing with Win Together and philanthropy uh, that's a little different than traditional lottery? No, that's, that's a great question. You know, so um, wintogether.org is, is our charitable sweepstakes platform. And it, I'll stay, it, it's still in, in its infancy and, and it will grow over time for sure. But the idea in, in sort of from a bird's eye view is that it, it's a charitable sweepstakes platform, meaning we can, and I'll say lottery and, and sweepstakes law are very different. Um, but they, so we can run these charitable sweepstakes in basically all 50 states. Uh, but it looks and feels like a lottery, meaning you donate, say, $10, $20, whatever it is, you are supporting your specific cause that you already like. And our goal there is just to give the incentive for the donor to pull the trigger on that. Uh, and we do that by incentivizing them with some kind of prize, whether that's a you know a cyber truck or a cash prize or a celebrity driven experience or you know a vacation, luxury prices, things like that, whatever that is. Um, so we just want to get you over the hump there to actually take action and then build that community, which you can become more engaged with over time. And so we work with charities like the Arbor Day Foundation, uh, OVI, I think it's, you know, the, the one that we're working with currently. And, you know, it's it's simply just a, a, a more, as you mentioned, you know, it, the, the lottery is a bit broad and it's governed by the states. And so where that revenue goes is, is beholden, you know, by the state. Um, whereas with the charitable sweepstakes, we can be very targeted and we can say, here's the need that is, you know, apparent now and we can focus on that. And I think, you know, what's always been important to us in the charitable sweepstakes is that the lion's share of every donation goes towards the actual good cause. So, you know, we have a minimum of 60% that actually goes to the cause and we try to beat that whenever we possibly can. Um, And anything else just gets recycled into more marketing and just more transactions, which ultimately leads to a a higher raise, if that makes sense. Um, And so, like, I'm I'm very happy and proud of, of Win Together. Uh, it, it's still small, but I think in the next couple of years, it's going to be a, a major driver of not just us as a company, but in driver of good things in the world. No doubt. Yeah, I love that. That's and I, and I like how you're actually marrying both that social impact uh, with the main core of your business. Yeah, uh, that's beautiful. Yeah, nice job. Thanks. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and also I'll just say on the on the sort of selfish side, you know, is. Uh, it's a great way for us to reach people who maybe not are traditional mm-hmm. lottery players, but, yep. you know, and then we can cross sell that. And it's funny, you know, in, in the, our ADF campaign is we found that the highest converting traffic to the charitable sweepstakes was existing lottery customers. Uh, and so, mm-hmm. you know, sort of cross selling those two products has been great for both sides. And how many States are you in now? Uh, we're in 12 States now. Uh, and I think we will be, we're, I think formally we're projecting between six and eight states by the end of this year. Um, we might beat that, um, but really our goal by the end of 2023 is to be in all 45 states that have lotteries. There's a few states that just don't and probably will not have lotteries, um, but uh, we want to be in all of them that we possibly can. And I'm sure you will. And uh, just last question, because I know Jeff's in the green room as well. Um, what what's the critical business issue or perspective of the states that will never or you feel as if will never have the lottery? What's their biggest objection? Oh, you know, well, I, I, I'll, I'll say <laughs> that's a tough question. So, you know, uh, as good I ask good questions. Easy I love questions it. No, tough questions. <laughs> uh, you know, so uh, if you look at a, a state like Nevada, 
um, it's, it's in the state constitution that they will not have a lottery. And you can sort of imagine how that law got in there. That's just how it happens. Competition is yeah. one of the critical issues. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah. And then just sort of, you know, cultural and religious objections, like, you know, Utah, probably not going to have it. Uh, Hawaii, yeah. maybe not. Alaska, probably not. Um, but, you know, uh, o- over time, I think that will happen. But also, there, again, there's just such a blue ocean ahead of us. You know, we account for a, a fraction of a percent of all of the lottery tickets that are sold online right now. Um, if we didn't open up another state in the next three to five years, and all we did was just grow within the states we're in right now, we would hit all of our projections and we'd be a very, very successful and happy company. Yeah, there's no doubt that uh, since, you know, there's certain things that I would invest in and one would definitely be a, a lottery or sweepstakes. They've been around a long time and yep. do very well. And if done correctly, if done honestly, like Mary.com and wintogether.org, uh, everybody can win together. We yeah. certainly appreciate you Absolutely. making the effort and especially of giving everybody uh, the great lesson of why not me. Because when I think of you, uh, I think of why not me. And because I, you know, it, it wasn't a big leap to say, hey, we should have lottery. I've been in the internet since 92. You know, we should have lottery.com. Um, but you know, when everyone's telling you, you can't do it, there needs to be someone like Tony D to say, why not me? So thanks so much. Uh, Tony DeMatteo, founder and CEO of lottery.com and windtogether.org. Come join us again. Thanks for everything that you do to give back. Yeah, absolutely. Great to have you here, Tony. Take care. Awesome, man. I love his beard too. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Guys who have have that look, I just want to turn them upside down though and just see what they look like. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, the image, the image. It, no, the image is like that pencil troll thing that you spin. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Uh, oh man, we got some great guests today. So, all right, we're finishing off strong here. Uh, we we have some coming up. Uh, Jeff, Jeff and Steve, Steve Oldbach yeah. here. They are principals at the you know small company at Deloitte. Uh, <laughs> street little tiny one here. Yeah. yeah. And uh, they these guys wrote a book. They're, look, now we got co-authors all over this uh, screen, which is great. Hey. All right, so Jeff and Steve, I got to ask you uh, a question that's very personal to me before we start. Which one of you really wrote the book? <laughs> Believe it or not, not only did we both write it, but we both actually wrote it, which um, sometimes doesn't happen these days. It's a dirty little secret. That- here's, my oh, yeah. dirty, here's my dirty secret. This is the guy that wrote uh, Compassionate Capitalism and put my name on it. All, I think all he did was ask me like a few questions of what I thought about his story. And somehow he gave me co-credit for an extremely powerful book. So uh, unlike YouTube. Blaine, you get all the credit for that genius book. Um, here we got a true partnership, a collaboration. This is true leadership, Blaine. And from a company of leaders, uh, I had another person at Deloitte on. I forget the title. She's amazing. But like way back in 2015, it's like something along the lines of chief mental health officer or all my, like a, it's a mindset officer at Deloitte, the last place in the world. Was it Jen Fisher? Yes. The amazing uh, Jen, Jen Fisher. Yep, she what, just wrote a terrific book title? too. What's her title? She's a uh, she's our chief well-being officer. Yeah, well-being. At she, Deloitte, she's got a brand new too. book out. She's got a brand new book out too, David. Yeah, I had her on. She um. So Jen, what amazed me is I thought for sure this was like a new position from like 2021. You know, like Chief Deloitte's finally. You know, no Deloitte way ahead of the game. This was like way back in 2000. Well-being. Nobody would have thought you guys did that. And I, I'm just so blown away. Anyway. 
your your book provoke how leaders shape the future you could not be better guest to be on with uh the learn blame bartlett over here because we talk about leadership all the time what's the spin on provoke uh being that shaping or you know the the potter's wheel of leaders well, I'm, I'm happy to kick things off here. And then I, you know, once you get um, Steve and me going, um, it's not clear your show will actually wrap up. But <laughs> the, core, the, the core premise in, in Provoke is that in part because we are increasingly being governed by exponential change rather than linear change, we mm -hmm. are living increasingly in a world of uncertainty. And the best leaders are those who can provoke the future that they want for themselves and their organization in the face of uncertainty. And what that means is recognizing earlier than anyone else and positioning yourself earlier than anyone else for when an uncertainty resolves from being a question of if it's going to happen to being a question of when it's going to happen. And that's really at the, at the heart of both how we set up the book um, related to the fatal flaws that stop us from being able to do that positioning and some of the advice that we give to our readers. Steve, anything to add there? Well, maybe just give it, I'll give an example of what we mean by an if to a when. So before the pandemic, there were lots of examples of very, very small parts of the workforce being either remote or in some kind of hybrid capacity, right? So defining hybrid by sometimes in person, sometimes in the office, uh, sorry, sometimes in person, sometimes remote. One of the things that uh, I think has become clear that hybrid models, where it's some of the two, is not a question of if it will become the dominant model. It's a question of when it will become a dominant model, because we ran the test. We ran the test now, and we know that remote work can be done productively. And so after we're not forced to be doing it, there's going to be a lot of benefits to working remotely from time to time, like you know, uh, parents with kids being able to spend more time with their kids. Uh, being healthier, you know, reducing our carbon footprints. So there's a lot of benefit to it. But we know that not all work can get done remotely as efficiently as it can in person. So there's going to be some in person. But we don't think it's a matter of whether or not this will happen anymore. It's it's feasible, it's desirable, and it's uh, and it's and it's it's and it's gonna and it's gonna happen. So those who are still questioning to what extent we should be all in person or all remote or to some extent wasting time. And we need to get on with the business of defining what kind of hybrid model will work for your business. So when we talk about a question of if to when, that's that's a uh, we think a, an example of the time that makes a lot of sense. And, and if I could add to that super quickly, Steve, when Steve said we ran the test, we were forced to run the test. The pandemic forced us to run the test. You know, yeah. as, as Steve said, there were early signals years before the pandemic arrived that there may be a better way of working, but people probably thought that ah, it's a long way off or it's not that big a deal. We don't need to worry too much about it. And all of a sudden the world caught up with us in a hurry about 19 months ago. If we had had the foresight as a society, as a set of business leaders to actually run the test beforehand and to get out in front of things and look for a way to create advantage and learn that lesson earlier than others, that's what we mean to provoke the future. Right. And the companies that did, I think that was my, going to be my question. Is it the pandemic itself is the premise of the book? Is it forced us to say, oh, everybody should have known it wasn't if, uh, you know, remote working or, or if virtual meetings were going to take place because there was billions of dollars spent in virtual meetings. But people like Dave Meltzer, you know, wasn't utilizing Zoom because I thought, why the heck would I use Zoom? 
when I can, you know, do three things at once and stay on my telephone so they can't see me. Um, you know, and now I probably use Zoom more than any human on earth <laughs> as I stand here in my closet. Uh, making more money than I've ever made on than, than I ever dreamed of. One quick question I have to add, and then Blaine, sorry, because these guys are right. They'll probably be on too long. Um, Marshall Thurber, <laughs> have you guys, you know, studied like social deviance or perturbation at all? Uh, because it seems like within the context of the biases and in the context of provoking change, you know, he, uh, Thurber tried to, ex you know, accelerate that by perturbing us using social deviance where the pandemic itself forced that type of perturbation to happen. Was there any uh, of that, or is that at all aligned with the prov the provocation of change? Well, the, the 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 cognitive biases that we talk about, or the so-called fatal flaws of the book, have their roots and have their roots in the in in cognitive psychology. So, sort of an adjacent field to social social deviance. But this is this is not something that you'd have to look up in a DSM. These are things that we all have uh, that, that we all have as human beings that are just functions of being human. So when we talk about fatal flaws, it's just because we're all subject to the, the kinds of biases. And the, the premise of Provoke is that the problem that we want to solve is we don't see how these trends move from if to when because of these cognitive biases, because we don't, uh, we, we have a preference for the status quo, uh, we have an egocentric bias where we like things based on that are consistent with our point of view. We are selective on data that is easily mentally accessible. So it aligns with our perspective. And so all of these things as human beings prevent us from seeing the, cha the changing landscape. And when you combine those human fatal flaws with the ways in which we interact in large organizations, like we avoid conflict in meetings and we don't fund exploratory budgets, then the, those two combine to create organizational blinders that prevent us from actually seeing when these things are are likely to happen. And that's the problem that we that's the problem that we need to solve in order to be able to act earlier and do something in the face of uncertainty. You know, Royal Dutch Shell years ago uh, was one of the very few companies that uh, forecasted or at least did some scenario planning around the collapse of the uh, what was then the Soviet Union. And where I'm going with this is, what, and correct, I haven't read the book, so correct me if I'm off base on this, but I, I, I would assume that one of the fatal human, or one of the, uh, the uh, fatal human, human yeah, the fatal human flaw here is the and, and and Steve, you were just kind of I think alluding to this is the uh, default tendency that almost every human being has to be comfortable. Yep. Yeah, to be comfortable. The, you know that whole comfort zone scenario. So yeah, yeah, and, you know, Steve, you're the you know, chief strategy officer at Deloitte there. So yeah. How, and I'm just curious. I mean, I, I did a lot of work with PwC a long time ago, and we did some very interesting things with them internally. I'm, I'm curious about what kind of scenario planning you actually are engaging in, if you yeah. are at all, to position the company. And, and, and partly this has to do with overcoming that, that default human flaw of you know, not wanting to go into the uncomfortable space. If you do scenario planning, it now becomes familiar and it's less uncomfortable. Is that so, part so of Blaine, if I could, in, in the spirit of true partnership, let me rip the mic away from Steve for a moment just to set up the premise of this and then let him comment on how we're using scenario planning for, for Deloitte. 
Uh, you can tell we've worked together for many, many years. But um, so you've, you've totally nailed it. At the, and and I, when you do get to read the book, I think you'll see there's a very strong theme in there around the importance of scenario planning and looking towards the future with some humility that we just don't know what's going to happen. And so it, historically, as business leaders, the tendency has been to say, look, we have a reasonably good understanding for how the future is going to unfold. You, you kind of set a path forward. You, you create some upside and downside sensitivities. And you say, that's roughly the range that, that things are going to play out in. Mm -hmm. What we're now learning increasingly, and, and I want to come back and comment on something you said in a, in a sec, Dave, uh, about the premise of the book being about the pandemic. But what we're learning increasingly is that you can't actually predict the future with any degree of certainty. And you just need to say, look, we can't do it. So what we need to do instead is to create equally plausible futures and plan against all of them simultaneously, which is exactly the art of scenario planning. That, and that what, what the pandemic has given us, and it's given us a lot of bad, but one silver lining to the pandemic is all of a sudden people understand what uncertainty feels like viscerally. We, and Steve and I did not set out to write a book about the pandemic or because of the pandemic, but we happened to start writing the book right at the beginning of the pandemic. And there could not have been a better illustration for a lot of folks about what it uh, of what it feels like to live in an uncertain world. So with that as a setup, Steve, maybe you can talk about some of the things that our firm is doing to use well, scenario planning. Yeah, I mean, it's we have we are very fortunate that the original founders of the uh, Royal Dutch Shell scenario planning are resident within Deloitte. So we, you know, Peter Schwartz, uh, Peter Schwartz, yeah. Peter Schwartz uh, and you know he's, he's, gone Salesforce, to, but, yeah. he's gone on to Salesforce. But the company that Peter and Eamon Kelly and Andrew Blau led, yep. GBN, was acquired by Monitor, which was acquired by Deloitte. And so it's a tool that we use. Uh, it's a tool that we use all the time. The very first thing I did when I was named chief strategy officer was lead our board and our executive through a scenario thinking exercise because we wanted to get out of the business of saying this is what the singular future is and i think some of our our best scenario work actually with peter we got the band back together if you will at the start of the pandemic and created collaboratively with salesforce um, a set of scenarios about how the pandemic would resolve, which I think hold up really nicely, even though they were done at the beginning. It's called, if you go out and uh, Google a world remade, um, you'll find uh, you'll find that work. And so we use it all the time um, because just, just, just thinking about what you don't know, right? The one rule that I've been taught by our scenario thinkers is that the more confident you are in the future, the more likely you should just not listen to that person who's super confident. And so figure out what you don't know and what you're in what, in what you're uncertain about and then create multiple plausible futures um, is the way to go. And that's the, if there's one lesson that we say in Provoke, there's one strategy that you can use, one action, even in the early stages of if, all the way through when is that envision. And that requires the use of scenario thinking. Yeah. You know, looking at that, it's interesting because we started the conversation earlier about, you know, Blaine and I, about ignorant, arrogance and ignorant humility and i always say the only person in the world that likes change is a baby and uh and we found that out and then the other one was certainty um and it was so funny to me when the pandemic hit that everyone's like oh these are such uncertain times and i said if somebody can tell me what's going to happen tomorrow 
just call me. And I'm not the greatest financial uh, person in the world, but I know how to make billions of dollars. If somebody's certain something's going to happen tomorrow, billions of dollars, I'll give all mine to charity. They can keep theirs if they know what is certain tomorrow. Uh, but yet everybody saw this as uncertain. It was really just the acceleration of change, uh, which created or evoked the primal fears, right? And Blaine and I've talked about that earlier. Um, how much is the human flaw aspect related to hubris or arrogance, uh, the human aspect of fear itself? And how do you use that fear in order to facilitate a strategic, critical business yeah. plan? Because fear seems to me to be one of the dependent variables that you would have to do in scenario uh, strategies. Yeah, maybe Jeff, I'm going to rip the mic out of your hand for a second. And um, Tommy, going for it. Yeah. Um, so, so I, I would say the, the so first of all, the fatal flaws are not because people are stupid or evil. It's just they're they're human, and 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 so some leaders are more confident than others. So I, I think that there's a wide distribution of that. The thing that we need to address in the area of risk and, and is that. The status quo in, in a world that's moving really fast, that's faced with exponential change, the status quo unfortunately feels not risky, but is incredibly risky, mm -hmm. right? And doing something different that's new feels really risky, but actually isn't that risky because the status quo is, uh, is, 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 is risky to just keep doing the same thing. So it, what we've got to solve is to, in, instead of creating the gut feeling that that new thing is risky, we've got to get out of the business and, and get people saying, oh my goodness, I've got this problem. The instinct should be to try something, right? Yeah. As opposed to, to yep. study yep. something. And that's got to be the change that we want to see in the world. And, and, and the only thing I would add to that, to what Steve said, which I agree with, is that I don't think the issue so much is hubris, is hubris, although that does cause blinders. The issue is confidence. And so somewhat perversely, the most successful executives have naturally a lot of confidence, and they're the ones who have the hardest time changing their behavior. And so interestingly, as, as we've been out in the world talking about some of these ideas, I think it's they, they've resonated increasingly with the people who have been uh, longest in their positions or longest at their companies in an industry who think they know how things are working, but are suddenly recognizing that actually the times are changing. Yeah. Yeah. That, 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 you know, that, that default positioning of, yeah, I'm right. Yeah. As far as I can tell being right or the need to be right is one of the dominant human flaws in, you know, in, in operation. You know, people would rather be right. In my experience, people would far rather be right than get what they say they want. And that has sunk a lot of ships. That is true. I, I, you know, it's not only being right. It's, it's, it's being right and then trying to continue to convince people that you're right in the face mm -hmm. of obvious, obvious information that says you're wrong. And so I, I'm actually okay with being confident that you're right before, be, before you yeah. go and test it. Like you feel confident. That's a good thing. But you leaders got to be willing to say, oh, I got this one wrong. Let's yeah. do something different because otherwise you're just doubling down on mistakes over and over again. We talk about in the book that maybe flip-flopping isn't such a bad thing. We always talk about it in the oh. political sphere yeah. as a yeah. as a problem. Actually, changing your position in the face of new information is a pretty good trait. In it's my a pretty business. good trait. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's yeah. the death grip on being right that uh, will get you in trouble. That death I grip. I always say take take inventory every day. And don't be afraid to tell people you learned something. And I know you write about in the book as well, just to finish up, you know, the avoidance uh, principles, you know, where we have, you know, this need of, you know, to avoid being embarrassed, which is counterintuitive because if we are illuminating uh, that we're learning and we are illuminating, we don't know what we don't want. No, this is actually the humility that protects us from embarrassment, especially uh, of being wrong or, you know, of feeling embarrassed because we thought something yesterday and it's completely different today. Uh, what are some of the things that we can do for that psychological problem of overconfidence? Because our leaders, in order to get to a position to run the companies that you deal with and Blaine and I deal with, you have to be confident. And then we're, you know, working against our own uh, characteristic to then be humble and to be able to, you know, not feel embarrassed because, you know, we, we failed, made mistakes. But meanwhile, none of us got there without failing, make mistakes, et cetera. So, so I, and my, my number one answer to your question, Dave, is engage. Engage with other points of view. And, and you can't engage with other points of view unless you actually have other points of view around the table. So one of the things that Steve and I write a lot about and feel very strongly about is the importance of cognitive diversity. Only if you get multiple different disparate points of view, even if they bring with them all individual human flaws, only unless you get all those views around a table and engage and discuss Will you actually be able to think about doing things differently and go and act in a way that that creates the future you're looking for? But a lot of people just avoid engagement. Yeah, don't yeah. take yes for an answer. That's for sure. I learned that in my 30s and <laughs> cost me over $100 million thinking not only I was right, but surrounding myself with people just to tell me I was right which is yep. a horrible thing. I needed Deloitte back then. Uh, anyway, uh, thank you both. Uh, I assume everybody can get Provoke everywhere. Amazon, I know it's one of the best sellers there. Uh, great place to go. Reach out uh, to Amazon, get that book. Anywhere else you want people to reach out to you guys? You can reach out to us on social media. So either LinkedIn or Twitter. Uh, I'm at Stephen underscore Goldback, Stephen with a V. And Jeff is at Jeff Tough, all one word, Jeff with a G. Jeff with a G, because you guys are all good. Uh, well, please tell uh, Miss Fisher I said hi, especially. Thank you so much for joining. Come on our other shows. Uh, I love the high-level conversation. You guys have yeah. uh, elevated my vibration. Let's just put it that way. Thank you for joining us. <laughs> Thanks for having us. Yeah, that's Thank great. you very much. I love this conversation. Definitely Cheers. provoking thoughts. That's for sure. Provoking conversation. Check yeah. out Provoke, How Leaders Shape the Future unbelievable by overcoming fatal human flaws which we talked about uh in those individual i have our friend coming on to ask us a question we have altif brown uh, constellation network and uh give us a little bit of background about the architecture of the constellation network and blaine and i are here to be of service to you and answer anything that we can we probably should have kept the Deloitte guys on. I got some real answers. What do you think, Blaine? No, thank you for having me. I, I love the conversation and listening in on it. And I definitely right up my alley. So I'm all Chief Brown, as you introduced me, one of the founders of a Constellation Network. And a Constellation, we leverage uh, blockchain, AI, edge computing uh, to bring about cybersecurity for big data streams. Um, our largest client right now is through the U.S. Department of Defense. Um, and kind of, you know, it's, it's very esoteric, but the easiest way to ground it is when using the internet, you use HTTP, right? Hypertext Transfer Protocol. And so uh, our hypergraph network has built or has added a new rail to the internet. Uh, so the HGTP rail um, is now is available to our critical system clients. 
And so we're trying to usher in like the future of decentralization, uh, starting with big data. Sweet. And you have a question for uh, my mentor and I? <laughs> I do actually. Um, and it's about kind of where a lot of things are headed. So I'm curious what your opinions are um, about like some of the big challenges that the tech sector will face in the next five years. You know, I'll start with that one. Um, and I know, you know, as you are part of the black LGBTQ uh, community, it's segmentation, right? It, it, I think the, the, the biggest problem with technology is that number one, our technology is advanced past our imagination. And two, it's created a tremendous quick segmentation of communities uh, where we, when we live places or we work places and it's real, in the speed of light, real, not a metaverse. Um, it's hard to get complete segregation of information and ideas. We were just talking about engagement previously with the Lloyd guys, right? That, you know, you want to be around engaging conversations of different opinions and different views and different life and all this. And what happens if all, Altif, if all you talk to are, you know, black gay men? Right. And that's all the news you get and all this, all the vision you get. And you don't got the old middle aged white guys, you know, giving you their opinion with open minds, open hearts and open hands. Right. And because, look, let's be honest, majority of people have open hearts, open minds and open hands. But now we segregate the communities and now we close the minds, we close the hearts and we close the hands. And then all of a sudden we get this new truth. And so I think my biggest problem is someone has been in technology since 92 is you know, I'm fearful of segmentation and I'm fearful that our imaginations can't keep up with technology uh, and it's going to cause us to have closed mind, closed hearts and closed hands. Yeah. 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 And, and I'll pick that thread up. Um, there's the metaverse is a fascinating, I mean, yeah, with AI and I mean, and that's, that, that's all trend. That's all that's, that is, that is actually happening. It's not a question that that's going to be in place. Bandwidth is, will be less and less of an issue. Um, but to the point that you're making, David, I think that that is going to be one of the big problems that we're looking at is the segregation of affiliation. And, because it becomes so easy to segregate myself and to separate myself into an area that I feel comfortable. And we will tend to sort for that rather than objectively and consciously and intentionally go out of our way to bring in points of view that are uncomfortable or unfamiliar to us. And it's only through that diversity of information that we actually grow. I think one of the greatest risks that uh, technology is uh, um, going, going to be being putting in front of us is atrophy. Yeah, atrophy of critical thinking, atrophy of social socializing, of, of uh, being able to take in disparate points of view and actually grow and expand as a consequence of that. So, you know, it, it, it's, it's a double-edged sword. There's almost a paradox embedded in this. And I'll tell you what's interesting. I mean, you have almost a billion dollar company, right? Your valuation is, and, and you're in the right space without a doubt, building the rail, you know, being a futurist yourself and understanding blockchain, being able to protect these communities and this data, uh, which is even more critical than what we're going to have naturally, these natural vacuums of information and of biases and judgments and conditions. Uh, but what happens without companies like yours, uh, where we can not only segment everybody and have a homogeneous 
perspective. But now we, you know, like we saw during elections, right, we're able to penetrate that community and feed it what we want to feed it right into their biggest insecurities, right into their biggest human flaws, right into separating more and more, you know, in once again, limiting the imagination, like Blaine says, that we have so much technology to rely on that we're not reading. I'm sure you're, you're you know, a, a self-proclaimed, by the way, tech nerd. I'm sure you read science fiction when you were young, right? I don't know one, you know, billionaire guy like you that wasn't knee deep in Dungeons and Dragons and Star Wars and Star Trek and every other thing. Why? Because that's how you were able to materialize the brilliant thoughts into something that works today. That's now beyond our next generation's imagination, you know, who's sitting there just receiving instead of creating and curious. Uh, and so I think we need leaders like you, young leaders with diverse backgrounds that are able to inspire everyone to imagine the oneness that we can create with your technology, not the segregated separateness that, yeah. you know, I, I'm most fearful of, but I know with you, you make me faithful and, and confident when I see yeah. someone like you, because I know that's not going to be allowed uh, with technologies of yours or leaders like you. Yep. 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 No, thank you uh, <laughs> for all those things for sure. No, and I, def I definitely agree uh, with that. I think that overall we hadn't, we kind of have to like reskill people, um, like in, well, in more broadly, of course, but even like just how we use the internet. You know, like a lot of people's maturity level is very different on how we interact with data, how we interact with content. You know, like back in school, you know, we used to have to take a bunch of courses about like internet literacy, et cetera, et cetera. But people that are coming onto the internet not with having that knowledge base. Uh, don't know how and that's not necessarily their fault it just is like it's a part of kind of growing up in the internet age um and so they become easily deceived by misinformation on all sides of the political spectrum yeah yeah we need and we need the internet to teach because as you know i mean we've had checkbooks for how long and nobody ever taught anybody how to use a checkbook they're not going to teach them how to use the internet in the classroom but luckily the classrooms are expanding uh the information is more accessible than ever uh, and so we'll keep working towards the betterment of all. We certainly appreciate you, Altif, and uh, please come back. Join me on some other shows. I, I want to get more involved in some deeper conversations. Uh, and congratulations on your great success and the causes that you're creating. Well, thank you. And I will definitely be looking forward to my next time visiting you all. Yeah, awesome. I'm going to be reaching out to you, Altif, because I'd like to get yeah, David mentioned a couple of his shows as well. And then when we share a couple of shows, I also want to get you on the uh, Soul of Business show. Um, because I think that you've got something there that uh, would be very interesting for listeners to hear. Cool. I'll talk to you all soon. Thank okay. I'll get you both. Have a good night, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> Man, did we have powerhouse guests today? Oh, rocking, rocking. Rockin'. I, I got to just tell you, I had no idea we were going to go with the ignorant uh, side of things, uh, but it, 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 it went away. Uh, I couldn't believe I'd all kept tying together. Um, and the arrogance and humility that's necessary to supply and utilize ignorance and stuff. What, what's your takeaway for the day, birthday boy? <laughs> well, I'm gonna, you know, the, the, the center of the constellation has to do with fear, yeah, I think. Yeah. Um, because when we look at, you know, you know provoke, you know, people get comfortable, they're fearful of moving out into the edge. That's where growth happens. Uh, our opening monologue or our opening, hell, it wasn't a monologue, what dialogue? Fireside chat. <laughs> Fireside chat. There you go. Uh, yeah, daddy, that's your fear, not mine. 
so let, we, we, we have to be willing to fail, not necessarily fail forward. I, I, you know, that's the, the, failing is about growth. That's all it's about. Failing is about growth. And each one of our guests today were talking about growing in their own different ways, whether it was growing into the lottery space, co-creating you know, with governments, uh, you know, moving, you know, moving, the, moving the needle on how we as a species actually are able to connect. You know, we don't connect because fear is in the way. And, and actually the correct title of that book I referenced that Jerry had written, Jerry Jampolsky, was Love is Letting Go of Fear. And that's that's what uh, the, we're working with here, because yeah, the the universe is about love at a frequency level. That's all it is. It's it's, uh, and I don't mean uh, squishy, mushy, you know, oh, I love you, sort of a thing. It's about connection. Love is connection, and that's where we move to. I love that, and mine ties into that because it revolves around the fear and ignorance uh, that closes our mind. So open mindedness uh, mm -hmm. to me and our. Uh, initial fireside chat lottery.com you know uh, it wouldn't exist you know you, if you don't have an open mind you're quitting on that idea even though you know it's a great idea you know like for example i i know that there has to be a solution to heal our atmosphere right i don't think there's a solution uh i, I want to get into the conversion uh conversion technologies meaning uh it, it's great to talk about carbon uh footprint and you know, don't put so much plastic here or whatever. We're past that. I understand compound interest and exponential growth. Human behavior is not going to change enough and our our, our, our consumption is not going to change enough. We have to have convergent technology. We have to convert the ocean, which is going to be overflowing into drinking and, and, and farming water. We have to convert our, uh, our sky into a healed sky. We, we have to convert trash into energy, clean energy or food or, or something that it will convert to compost, uh, you know, wh whatever it is. Uh, but we can do it with, with the open mind, open hearts yeah. and open hands. We, we can do it the way that we put a man on the moon. It, 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 I'm guaranteed. And I want more entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs out there to take note of everybody on the show today, because why not me? If, if you're there 12 years old or 18 years old or 28 years old listening to all of us today, I want you to think to yourself, why not me? I can change the world. I can save the world with my beliefs and my imagination uh, and with really good work ethic. So uh, yeah. that's my takeaway for the day. You're a testament to those uh, things. You're going to say something? Yeah, I've got one thing to add on that. And I, I couldn't agree with you more on what you've just spoken about. Uh, Steve, Steve and Jeff, I want to you, yeah, the idea of the status quo being the most dangerous place to be. Um, I watched something last night that I, I'd, I'd love the people listening to this show to actually uh, access here. And it's a, it's a new uh, film out by Richard Attenborough. Um, and it's called The Year the Earth Changed. It is absolutely fascinating. And it looks at the last 18 months, pandemic, but what's happened in nature is a consequence of mankind slowing down, stopping the frenetic way that we have conducted business and what's happened in nature as a consequence of that. So when you're talking about healing the sky, you know, you know, the ozone hole over the Antarctica is actually larger than Antarctica right now. It's the first time that's ever happened. It's just, I mean, we've got to do something and it's, it's not going to be incremental. 
it's something as dramatic as stopping and then reevaluating before we start up going back to the status quo, which is absolutely the worst thing that we could possibly be doing. So when we're going back, what are we going back to? Let's, let's reinvent the future. Yeah, like I always say, when the mind, the body, and the soul are on fire, and that's uh, analogous to our own galaxy, the mind, the body, the collective mind, soul, and body of our galaxy, when it's on fire, you got to stop. You got to yep. drop down to center to neutral, like my friend Trevor Moad taught me. Yep. And then let's all roll in the right direction. Yep. Uh, one which will heal ourselves and our universe. Thank you so much. Learn.blainbartled.com. If you want to learn, it's forward slash LMM. It's an incredible mindset mastermind. He is the soul of business. Please join Blaine. I have learned more from him than I call it the MBA in a day. So thank you so much, Blaine, for helping me and so many other people. I will see you next week, my friend. Absolutely. Thank you, my friend. Blessings. Awesome. You know, I uh, I forgot Blaine's birthday, and I, I didn't call him on his birthday, so I got to keep saying happy birthday. I'm about to send him a big gift. All right. Anyway, I'll have to call his wife and see what he wants, or go ahead, DM me. Let me know what you think he wants. Office Hours with Dave Meltzer here. Remember, everybody, we will be tomorrow. It's training day. Clubhouse is 6 a.m. Pacific time. BYOQ. You bring the questions. I'll bring the answers. 6 a.m. to 7 a.m. Clubhouse, IG, webinar. Please join me. You're going to love it. 6 a.m. training tomorrow. Most importantly, be kind to your future self and do good deeds. We'll talk to you later. Thanks.